four generals and these four families. Um, but in terms of Scripture, in your Bible, when sh- once you leave Malachi, then you go to Matthew, and there's a 400-year gap there that the Scripture doesn't speak to. Now, the apocryphal books are books that record that history, but they're not Scripture. They're historical records, and they can teach us a lot about the history of Israel during that intertestamental period. But in terms of Scripture, Scripture is silent at this point until until the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Christ. So a lot of what we're talking about here is not in the Scripture, but it absolutely has to do with God ordering His world and preparing His world for the coming of Christ. So, um, 44 B.C., Julius Caesar was assassinated. Uh, I think we covered this last week. 43 B.C., the second triumvirate is established. So now, um, Caesar was that guy who was the, the, the main ruler, and the people in particular, his friends in the Senate, feared him and his power, and they killed him in an effort to save the republic but um, they didn't. They actually made things worse. So then the second triumvirate is established, made up of Octavian, Mark Antony, and a guy named Marcus Lepidus. Octavian and Mark Antony are the two guys that have all the power. And then in 42 B.C., Caesar Octavius, or Octavian, Remember, this is the great-nephew of Julius Caesar. Caesar, Octavius, and Mark Antony defeat Cassius and Brutus. So Cassius and Brutus were both senators. They were in the Roman Senate. They also were generals. They were military leaders. They had all served with Julius Caesar. They had all been friends of Julius Caesar. And Cassius and Brutus were the two masterminds behind the assassination of Julius Caesar. And so Octavius and Mark Antony hunt these guys down and uh, because they knew they were the masterminds behind the assassination. So at Philippi, yes, the biblical Philippi, the letter Paul writes to the Philippian church, It's at Philippi, they fight a battle between these two armies, the armies of Octavius and Antony and the armies of Cassius and Brutus. So you got the Roman armies, two Roman armies fighting each other, uh, both loyal to their generals. And long story short, Cassius and Brutus are defeated in this battle. And because they are defeated, they're not going to allow themselves to be captured, so they both... uh, kill themselves. And uh, it was said that Cassius, the hand that he used to stab Caesar became this withered hand. And he believed it was basically uh, a curse that came upon him for killing Caesar. And Cassius had instructed one of his freedmen, one of his slaves that he set free, that upon his defeat, or upon his death to, to cut his head off and, and then have it delivered. 
And that's what happened. Uh, Cassius has his freedman kill him. Uh, Cassius dies, and then uh, his head is cut off. Brutus, knowing he's also defeated, has his guy there, and, and Brutus takes his sword and runs it into his heart from his side and dies. And both Cassius and Brutus both died by the very swords that they used to kill Caesar. And so with the death of Cassius and Brutus, um, revenge was brought for Julius Caesar, and now Octavian and Antony uh, are basically ruling the empire as part of the second triumvirate. So while this is going on, there are battles and wars that are being fought. And so, remember we mentioned the Parthians. The Parthians are these people that, that, that lived in what, what we would call present-day Iraq, and they're basically descendants of the Persians. They had not been conquered by Rome yet. Uh, in fact, they were quite a, um, a strong people. And so um, there are wars going on there in Syria and in that area. And Herod is set in place, but because of these wars, uh, he has suffered defeat. Israel has, or J Jerusalem has, has basically been captured, and Herod is kind of out. He's supposed to be the guy in charge, but they don't remember, they don't like Herod. And so Herod, uh, he had secured favor uh, because of his family history. His dad served with these Jewish, I mean, with these Roman leaders. He served with Octavian in the army. And so Octavian favored Herod as Mark Antony favored Herod because Herod had paid off Antony as Antony was ruling there in Egypt and in Israel in that area. And so uh, the Jews sent a delegation. Mark Antony was in Tyre, and they sent a delegation there to complain about Herod. And they were warned not to do this um, because Herod had basically paid off Mark Antony. And so when those Jewish envoys get there to lodge complaints about Herod and wanting to have him removed, uh, Antony takes them and ends up killing them uh, because the Jews are very rebellious. Um, and, and so they, the Jews were like this thorn in the flesh to the Romans. And so Mark Antony, just like I'm not going to put up with it, so he kills the guys that come there to complain about Herod. And Herod's, um, Herod's place is secure with Rome. Um, and so the Jews were not going to get rid of Herod. Uh, by trying to negotiate with the Romans because Herod had already paid off the Romans and the Romans were loyal to Herod because Herod had been loyal to the Romans. Then in 40 B.C., uh, Caesar Octavius and Mark Antony create this agreement. These guys don't get along. They rule uh, very differently. They have different styles of leadership and, and they just uh, do not get along. And they agree to peacefully divide the Roman Republic. We can't really call it an empire yet, but it's on the verge of becoming an empire. 
And they, they decide to peacefully divide the republic into east and west. And Octavius takes the west, and Antony takes the east, and the east includes Egypt. And by this time, uh, Mark Antony has already met Cleopatra, and they have fallen in love, and they are in deep relationship with one another. And now remember, while all this intrigue is happening with Rome and you've got wars against the Parthians, so Mark Antony is leading the Roman uh, wars against the Parthians. Um, you've got these other guys, the Arminians. Uh, they're also called the Comagene. I don't know how you say that word, C-O-M-M-A-G-E-N-E. -E. Basically, the Arminians. So it... It is uh, the eastern central part of what we would call Turkey today. Remember, these are the guys that tried to give advice to, um, to the Romans when they were invading the Parthians and the Romans didn't listen to them. And that's how, um, that's how um, one of the other leaders of the first triumvirate met his doom and his defeat. Well, now these guys, these Armenians, have come and they have invaded Syria. They've invaded uh, the area there, uh, Palestine, Jerusalem. And um, they come in and, and they are creating um, a real pain for the Romans. And it puts Herod under great hardship because Herod is now needing to flee because Jerusalem's been taken and he can't stay there, so he goes east trying to get some help and doesn't get help. He eventually flees to Rome. So he goes to Egypt, he talks to Cleopatra, and then he ends up going to Rome, and he gets to Rome, and he falls on the mercy of Mark Antony in Rome. Antony's in Rome, Octavian is in Rome, uh, because he can't find help anywhere else. So Octavian is loyal to Herod. I mean, uh, Mark Antony is loyal to Herod, and Octavian was sympathetic to Herod because, uh, remember, Herod's dad, Antipater, served with Octavian in the Roman army, and so they fought together uh, for Rome. Um, and so Herod is declared by the Roman Senate at the urging of Mark Antony and Octavius Herod is declared king of the Jews. So in 40 B.C., in Rome, in the Roman Senate, Herod is there with the two powers of Rome, Octavian and Mark Antony, and the Senate declares him king of the Jews. So Herod leaves the Senate with Mark Antony and Octavian. He leaves Rome and he goes back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is... Uh, now controlled by these Armenian guys. So the Jews in Jerusalem, remember they don't like the Romans, they don't like Herod. Uh, and so the Jews have kind of allied themselves with this other power. And uh, they control Jerusalem. And Herod comes back and he has Roman troops uh, along with his own troops from his own region. But they're all loyal to Rome. And they besiege Jerusalem in a long siege and, and finally are able to take back 
recapture Jerusalem in 37 B.C. Um, the Jews who opposed him suffered in the siege, very reminiscent of what we'll read and what we'll see uh, in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Sieges are all kind of, they work the same. People inside are starving, and they do horrible things to survive. And uh, so this happened in 37 B.C. Uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and Herod takes control of the city again. Then in 35 B.C., remember the Hasmoneans? In 35 B.C., a guy by the name of Aristobulus, he's only 17 years old, he has made the high priest in Jerusalem. So at age 17, he is very reminiscent in his physical stature to his, to his grandfather, who was a very popular high priest. Remember, the Hasmoneans ruled the Jews for about a century. They were free, and it was the Hasmonean dynasty that, that ruled uh, the Jews and ruled Judea. Uh, until the Romans came. Well, the Hasmoneans, though they lost their, their power, so to speak, they were still a very powerful family. They were still a very wealthy family, an influential family. And so this young man at age 17 becomes the high priest, and he's overseeing the sacrifices at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a very... Uh, it's a very celebratory feast. So remember, there's seven feasts uh, that God gave the Jews initially. There's two more that have been added. There's nine now um, that we read about in the Bible. So the original seven, which begins with Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, uh, Rosh Hashanah, or Feast of Trumpets, then you have Day of Atonement, and you have Tabernacles. Those were the original seven feasts that you see that the Lord gave to Moses in the law. And then when uh, the Jews were saved under Esther's reign as the queen, uh, the Persian queen under As, um, Xerxes, um, Purim became a feast that the Jews now still celebrate every year. And then, remember, we read about, we looked at the account of that period of time when the Seleucids, the, the general from Alexander, um, that he was given the area there of Syria and Israel or Judea, and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and he desecrates the temple, and the Maccabees drive them out, recapture the temple, and they've got to... Uh, rededicate everything in the temple and the miracle of the oil. The oil lasts eight days while the priests can make new oil and, and uh, sanctify it. it. That feast we call Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. All three names are the same thing. Uh, and we see that Jesus went to the temple during the Feast of Dedication. When you read that in the Gospels, that is the feast, that's, that's the celebration of Hanukkah, what we call Hanukkah today. Well, tabernacles of the original seven feasts, tabernacles was the only feast that was a celebration. The others were, were actually 
solemn feast. It's not that they didn't celebrate. They were feasts. But they weren't like tabernacles. Uh, all of the feasts revolved around had to do with the harvest. And so um, tabernacles occurred in the fall of the year, you know, our September, October. Uh, and it was celebration of the harvest of the olive trees, the figs, olives. Uh, it wasn't the grain harvest. The grain harvest was done uh, by Pentecost. By Pentecost, the grain harvest was over. Then you have the long, hot summer. But it is in the fall that tabernacles celebrated uh, that harvest, but it was the Feast of Booths. It was remembering, it was Israel remembering that they wandered in the wilderness 40 years and they had to sleep in booths as they wandered in the wilderness. And it's the celebration of God tabernacling with his people, God with us. Um, now, some people believe that some people believe that three feasts are yet to be fulfilled. Now, this is this is um, very this is dispensational theology. So, dispensationalists believe that four feasts have been fulfilled, and there's yet three to be fulfilled. And uh, they believe, obviously, Passover was fulfilled, uh, unleavened bread was fulfilled. First fruits was fulfilled, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and then at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But we're in this uh, parenthetical period, the age of grace or the age of the church, and we're awaiting the fulfillment of the other three, which would be Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets. Now, um, in dispensational theology, that trumpet represents the trumpet sounding and the rapture of the church. Then seven years of tribulation, and while seven years of tribulation are taking place here, there's a wedding going on in heaven between the church and Jesus. And then um, Day of Atonement is going to be the, um, the great judgment. And then Tabernacles is going to be when God dwells on earth with us. <clears throat> well, I believe those have all been fulfilled. I think they are all fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, because uh, I believe Jesus was more than likely born during the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, and, and so the head of the year, I think that announced the coming of Christ, uh, the birth of Christ. Uh, we see the writer of Hebrews who gives us the picture of the Day of Atonement. So let's just go there real quick. I know this is kind of a rabbit trail from our... Um, from this, but just to better understand, while while we have the um, mention of tabernacles here, so if we go to Hebrews and we go to, um, let me see. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9.28 is where I, I want to go. Hebrews 9.28. <clears throat> um, so let's see. Um, let's begin in verse 23, Hebrews 9.23. 
Now, you know the context of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jews in Italy who want to go back to Jerusalem and sacrifice animals in the temple. So what does that tell us about uh, the time period of the, the book of Hebrews? You might not know when it's written, but you can know that it was written before a certain time. So it would have definitely been written before 70 A.D., more than likely before 66 A.D., because it was more than likely before the war began between Rome and, and the Jews, uh, and there was a long siege of Jerusalem that culminated with the destruction of the temple and, uh, in large part, the city being destroyed. Josephus writes, and Josephus was an eyewitness. He was there literally riding outside the walls of Jerusalem trying to beg the Jews to surrender to the Romans because he knew what would happen if they did not. Uh, and Josephus says that after the destruction of the temple and the city, there was nothing recognizable. There was nothing recognizable. There was no place you could tell that there was a temple. There was nothing recognizable about the city or the temple at had all been destroyed. This is why I don't believe the, the uh, Temple Mount and the Wailing Wall is, is a wall of the temple. Because Josephus very clearly says that after that destruction, there was nothing to be seen. That's right. And, and if that Wailing Wall is part of the temple, then Jesus is a false prophet. And confirming what Jesus said... And not, not because Josephus was a follower of Jesus, because he was not. But confirming what Jesus said, Josephus literally says that they, the Romans did not leave one stone left upon another of the temple, that you could not even recognize where the temple was. Um, and so <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter long before, or certainly before, not long before, because he also says, because the writer of Hebrews knew what Jesus predicted would happen to Jerusalem. So we have it recorded in the Gospels. Matthew 24, Luke 19, Jesus tells them they're going to build siege mounds and bring engines and, and destroy you and, and your children and destroy this city. And, <clears throat> and so the writer of Hebrews knew the prophecy of Jesus and uh, talked about how these things are passing away. But look at this here in, in Hebrews 9.23. Therefore, it was necessary that copies of the things in the heavens should, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So what were the copies of the things in the heavens? Well, the things on earth were the copies of the things in heaven. So when John sees... And, and he mentions it in the book of Revelation, the Ark of the Covenant, he's seeing the real thing. I, I believe, um, who is the Ark of the Covenant? Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the, the true Ark in heaven is Jesus. Now, whether John saw uh, an Ark or not, but he didn't see some translated box that Moses and the children of Israel made and then God teleported it to heaven. Because that box here on earth was only a copy. How do we know that? Because this is exactly what the Bible says. The copies of the things in the heavens should be purified, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Jesus, our great high priest, Jesus, the lamb slain, our atonement, the one whose blood, the only blood that could be applied to the Ark of the Covenant that would actually take away our sin, Jesus never walked into the Holy of Holies made with hands. He never did. Which are copies of the true. But where did Jesus go? He entered not into those places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He, meaning Jesus, would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And is it, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Where was he offered? Where was Christ offered? It's not a trick question. Where was Christ offered? On the cross, yes. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, this kit could apply to the second coming of Christ. But I believe what the writer of Hebrews is picturing for us here because he's using the language of the Day of Atonement. So on the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice. Remember, there would be two of them. One, they would lay their hands on and, and, and sacrifice, and that blood would ultimately be taken behind the veils into the Holy of Holies, and the blood of that sacrifice is sprinkled on the mercy seat. Remember, there's another goat. He lives on my road. His name is Azazel. I see him. I saw him this morning as I drove by. The demon goat. And uh, <laughs> he was turned loose into the wilderness. And he now lives on my road, just down the street in a mobile home uh, from me. Azazel is his name. But this picture is that the high priest takes... Now, all Israel is gathered here. So all Israel is gathered as the high priest takes the blood of the sacrifice. This is the one time a year the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to appear in the presence of God. And when he goes behind those veils, what are the people waiting to see? Whether or not he comes out. And the way Israel would know whether God accepted the sacrifice of that, that animal was that the priest would come back and appear to them a second time apart from sin. He took the sin in, God accepted it, he appears a second time apart from sin. When, did, when was Jesus offered? Where was he offered? The cross. When did Jesus appear a second time to us apart from sin? At the resurrection. We're not waiting for Jesus to return and put his feet on earth. That's not when Jesus will return a second time apart from sin. Jesus returned a second time apart from sin 
when he came back from death at the resurrection, his resurrection was his appearing a second time apart from sin. What, does, what did he become for us on the cross? He became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So he goes to the cross, he's offered at the cross, and he becomes sin for us. Our sin is joined to him. He takes within himself our sin. He experiences the fullness of God's wrath. He is offered there. His blood is spilt. He offers his life. He gives up his spirit. He dies. He's buried. And he appears a second time apart from sin. And we know that the Father accepted the blood of his Son because Jesus appeared a second time. And then he ascended to the Father. So the language here in Hebrews is this language from the Feast of Atonement. It's not talking about something that will happen again one day. Now, we know Jesus will return one day because he was raised from the dead. He's a living Savior. So his second coming, his his coming is not in question, but this is not what's being pictured here in the book of Hebrews. And so basically what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if you guys go to Jerusalem and offer the blood of bulls and goats, thinking that's going to do anything for your sin, you're trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ, you're saying the blood of Christ has no effect. It is not sufficient for my sin. And, and, and that's when he says, if that's, that's the case, then there no longer remains a sacrifice uh, for your sin. So the writer of Hebrews is not talking about, um, you know, if you don't work hard enough, you'll lose your salvation. Or you're waiting with bated breath to get to heaven to find out whether you're going to be saved one day. No, if you're trusting in Jesus, your sins are taken away. But if you're going to go back to Jerusalem and offer an animal, you're telling me that your sins are not sufficiently atoned for because you need the blood of an animal, huh? Then you're not trusting Jesus. And if you're not trusting Jesus, then your sins aren't forgiven. It's a very practical thing. Um, And so this is atonement. This is the day of atonement. And then that's on the 10th of the month. On the 15th of the month, it begins the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's go back to our history lesson. Yes. 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 Yeah, so I believe so I'm not saying that this can't apply to the physical second coming of Jesus, but I think primarily we need to understand this in a spiritual way. So those who eagerly wait for him he will appear a second time apart from sin. So remember the context here, and I think it applies for us 2,000 years later. I mean, when we fall into sin, when we realize our sin, do we, do we realize that Jesus has atoned for our sin? Do we realize that his blood has taken away our sin? And, and when we realize that, are we like those, those Jews who assembled and literally were eagerly waiting to see that high priest come back out and know that the sins 
of the nation that their sins had been once again atoned for. There was that level of anticipation. And I think what the writer of Hebrews here is saying is to those who eagerly wait for him, to those who, who are anticipating, who faithfully, eagerly, fervently wait. So it's not a just a flippant, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins, or oh yeah, you know, I'm not worried about uh, my sin because Jesus died for my sin. I mean, there's a way we need to have that assurance but I think there's a way that we can, have, uh, we can have that or know that, have that knowledge, and it not really be, um, we don't really fully understand. The picture painted here, I want us to grasp the picture painted here. I mean, if you can picture in your mind's eye the people gathered, and they are literally waiting to see whether God is going to accept that sacrifice. Uh, we should be like that, not, not in a sense that we're unsure of our salvation, but knowing that we have the atonement of our sins provided for us, and we should be eager to know that, to see that, to have the revelation of that. So this kind of makes me think about uh, what Paul says in Galatians when, when he says in in. In God's time, he revealed himself in me when he separated me from my mother's womb. Um, and, and so there is an appearing of the Lord that each one of us must experience. Uh, I believe that. Uh, I, there is a revelation that God gives us. We, we can put all kinds of names on it. But that appearing of the Lord is not just a one-time thing. I mean... We should have the image of that, the knowledge of that, the assurance of that always, that Jesus appeared for me a second time apart from sin. Therefore, um, my sins are forgiven. I, I do believe that you can apply this to a future coming of Christ, but I don't think that's the only way and the primary way we should understand this in the context of this entire letter. Um, because it's for the, for a Jew reading this, it's a very clear picture of what he's presenting here. You know, in a moment, there's the first, uh, I see him, now he's disappeared, and now I see him again. The second appearing for us is always going to be that moment when we have the revelation of Christ, who has atoned for our sins, who has put away our sins once for all. How many times can we have that revelation? It should be ongoing. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, we, we, we have the knowledge of it. We have the assurance of our salvation. John writes, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So God wants us to have the assurance of our salvation, but he never wants us to take our salvation for granted. So he wants us to have the assurance. And so in a sense, the appearing of Christ is something that should, should continuously happen. You know, in moments when, uh, when I realize you know, when I fail, when I fall, and I realize my sinfulness, or maybe I haven't fallen, maybe I haven't failed, maybe I just, uh, in a moment of God's grace, I just have this overwhelming sense of His love and mercy and grace, and, and even though everything is as it should be, and I'm not, you know, I'm not involved in some sin or something, but, but I realize in relation to God, what am I? <laughs> You know, I'm like Isaiah, man, when I, when I get a revelation of who Christ is, it should make me fall down like dead. 
It should make me realize how thankful I am that God... And so that revelation of Christ appearing a second time, that revelation of knowing that I am alive today, I have eternal life today because Christ appeared a second time apart from sin. He is the risen Savior. If he's not the risen Savior, then we don't, we're dead in our sin. We're absolutely dead in our sin if he's not the risen Savior. And there's no hope for us. And so there needs to be that conscious revelation of the appearing of Christ a second time apart from sin. Uh, it's an amazing thing. Yes. Corinthians chapter 1 verse 7 says, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can take that to mean a second physical coming. But I think when Paul talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's talking about the revelation we need to get. I mean, we need to have a revelation of Jesus Christ that gives us hope every day. We need to have a revelation of Jesus Christ that reminds me that even though I don't see all things under his feet, I see Christ. I have a revelation of Christ. I don't have to see all things under his feet because I have a revelation of Christ. And who is the revelation of Christ given to? It's given to those who eagerly wait. So it's not given to those unfaithful, lazy servants who think that uh, their master's never going to come back or we got plenty of time, let's just party. Uh, no, it, those who eagerly wait are those faithful servants who are busy about the master's business, uh, not because they fear the master, but because they love the master. And, and they're not trying to think about how far away his return is. They're faithfully doing what he has entrusted to them, not worried about when he's coming back, just knowing that he is coming back. And when he comes back, they need to have all things ready and prepared for him. That is, to me, those who eagerly wait, those who are faithfully waiting. That scripture in Isaiah, those who wait upon the Lord, you know, that picture in the Hebrew, that word picture there is a waiting with expectancy. It's the same type of thing we see, those who eagerly wait, those who expectantly wait. How should, be, how should we be waiting for the second appearing? We should be waiting eagerly with expectancy, faithfully, in faith, diligently doing. This is how the Jews would have waited as they saw their high priest go behind the veil. They would have been anticipating, faithfully anticipating his return, knowing that their sins are forgiven. Well, we, we yeah, yes, yes. And so we know that Jesus has already been offered up. We know he's gone into the holy place not made with hands. He's entered into the heavenly places and, and his blood has been applied. But we still should be those who are eagerly waiting a revelation of him every day to equip us and to help us. Uh, so I think it applies in every way, not just in that one way that's far off in the future. We should seek and eagerly wait for a revelation of Christ in our daily life uh, as we live life because that's how God is going to equip us and empower us. So that's Day of Atonement. And then five days later, on the 15th, it begins the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a seven-day feast. So this is, this is the feast that Arist Aristobulus was 
overseeing and offering the sacrifices for. And the people were so proud of him because they, for those elders, <clears throat> he reminded them of his, of his grandfather. So those older Jews there were seeing this young man and they're like, this looks like our great high priest that we remember. And the people immediately fell in love with this kid. Then after the celebration of the feast, so this would have been after the eight days of the feast. So Tabernacles is over. It's a great celebration. There are parades, there's music, there's dancing, there's juggling, there's all kinds of events where uh, the priests go and they draw well from Jacob's water from Jacob's well and they, they go with a procession back to the temple. This is the feast where Jesus in John 8 is saying, I am the living water. It's at Tabernacles that they're pouring the water there from Jacob's well. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Uh, they, they bring the, the old uh, robes of the priest that they used to sacrifice in, and they would turn those old priestly garments into wicks. And they had these gigantic menorahs that were like 75 feet high. They were giant. And they would use these uh, priestly garments, and they would light these giant menorahs. And it was said that during tabernacles, when they would have the, the light ceremony, that Jerusalem literally was like a, a light, a city of light on this hill, shining in the darkness. It was during that ceremony that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And so tabernacles, eight days, seven plus one, there's a total of eight days. So after this, there was a celebration uh, a banquet was given by uh, his mother, Alexandria, and King Herod, of course, was in attendance. And King Herod, um, during the feast, entices the young man to, let's leave this hot banquet hall. Let's go to the swimming pool and swim. And Herod entices this young man to the swimming pool. And, of course, Herod has other people there, other men there. And they're playing pool games, you know, they're playing horse and they're playing dunking each other. And so Aristobulus thinks that they're just having great fun in the pool and they dunk Aristobulus underwater, but they don't let him come back up and they drown him. Now, why would Herod drown this high priest? Remember what his family is. He's from the Hasmonean family. And who ruled Jerusalem for 100 years? Who ruled Judea for 100 years? Well, the Hasmoneans did. No, his wife was. He married a Hasmonean woman, but he was um, a Dumian or something. He was, he was only half Jew. His father was Jewish. Um, yes, and coming from the Hasmonean dynasty... Herod was afraid that he would become so popular because it was the high priest who ruled. So remember, the Jews didn't have a king. They had a high priest, and the high priest ruled um, the people. And so Herod obviously saw the popularity of this young high priest and decided he had to, to end it. Um, so after his death was reported, there was great mourning in Jerusalem. It created all kinds of uh, problems. Herod assured the people 
that he had nothing to do with it. It was an accident. He didn't even know it had happened. He wasn't responsible. Um, he gave, he spent a great amount of money on the funeral for this young man. But his mother knew that Herod murdered her son, but there was nothing she could do about it. Uh, that's in 35 B.C. So those things are happening. That tension is there. Um, and there had also been tension, remember, between uh, Octavian and Mark Antony. So finally, in 32 B.C., these tensions boiled over in what's called the War of Actium. So uh, when this kind of erupts, Cleopatra sees an opportunity. Remember, her first stint was with Julius Caesar, and her and Julius thought they could rule the world together, and then he's assassinated. And now Mark Antony has taken over in the third, second triumvirate, and she's now with him. They've married, and they have children. Um, and so Cleopatra sees an opportunity here with the start of this war. So they're fighting... Um, uh, Cleopatra talks Mark Antony in getting Herod to, to gather an army and invade Arabia. So they're going to fight the Arabians. And so Cleopatra's thought was she didn't like Herod. She didn't trust Herod, and rightly so. She didn't like him. He was probably too much like her. Um, and so her thought was send Herod to fight the Arabians, and if Herod loses... Um, I'll be the queen of Jerusalem. If Herod wins, um, then I'll be the queen of Arabia. So it was like a win-win in her mind. So she sends, um, she talks Antony into having Herod go and fight the Arabians. And in the midst of this, Octavian is in Rome and he is seeing Mark Antony amass this army because Mark Antony's getting ready to, to do this military campaign. And Octavian is worried that, that Mark Antony's going to become too strong militarily for him. Um, and Mark Antony's uh, mistake was that he waited too long. Uh, he should have acted quicker, but he didn't. And in the meantime, Octavian got his stuff together gathered an army, and decided it was time to have the showdown with Mark Antony. Now, what, Mark, what Octavian did, Mark Antony uh, had his will, his, his last will and testament. And it was entrusted, and I guess this was a common thing, with the uh, Vestal Virgins of the Roman religion in the temple there in Rome. Uh, Mark Antony's last will and testament was entrusted to them, was not to be read by anyone in, until after his death. And so Octavian goes to the virgins at the temple and he says, I want the will of Mark Antony. And they said, uh, we can't give you the will of Mark Antony. But if you come and take it, we won't stop you. <laughs> so Mark, uh, Octavian goes and he gets the will of Mark Antony and he opens it and he reads it in the Senate. Well, he reads it first himself. Then he reads it in the Senate. And there was great outrage that Octavian did this because that was really a sacred thing. It's like, you don't do that. And so at first, the people turned and the Senate turned against Octavian 
because he had done this unspeakable thing. It's like, you don't do that. He's not dead yet. He's still alive. But when they begin to hear what was in Mark Antony's will, they became enraged. And so all the rumors about Mark Antony being, you know, more Egyptian and more loyal to Cleopatra than to Rome, whether it was true or not, uh, the will kind of confirmed it. And so that was what solidified it for Octavian. So now Octavian had the support of the people and he had the support of the Senate. So he goes and he takes his army. And in 31 BC, at what's called the Battle of Actium, uh, Mark Antony is defeated. Uh, he, he's defeated, so he's got a naval force. Cleopatra's got an Egyptian naval force. And uh, both of their naval forces are defeated by Octavian. Now, they, are, they defeat. So what happens is um, Cleopatra sees Mark Antony getting uh, defeated and his ships being defeated. And she gets scared and she bolts in her boat. She sails away from the battle. And Mark Antony's in the thick of the battle and he sees the, the ship of the queen sailing away. And he breaks away from the battle and he pursues Cleopatra, leaving his men, leaving the battle, which sealed his fate with his men. I mean, that was, that was, that was an unforgivable sin for the general to flee and leave his men there. He catches up with Cleopatra. He gets on the boat. He's on the boat with her and he is like, he knows he's done. He knows that there is no recovering for him. Uh, even if his men were to win the battle, they would never accept him. And so they, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, flee, uh, but Octavian pursues them. And um, <clears throat> at some point as they're running, um, Mark Antony believes that Cleopatra is dead. In, in, in his belief that she has been killed, he attempts to kill himself unsuccessfully then it's discovered that cleopatra is not dead but here mark antony is mortally wounded from trying to kill himself and so they take antony to cleopatra and he dies in her arms then cleopatra goes to octavian and asks octavian um for a decent burial for Mark Antony. She also tries to pull the same thing that she did with the two previous Roman rulers, but it doesn't work with Octavian. And so he agrees to allow her to give Mark Antony an honorable burial. Um, long story short, she is in her room under house arrest, and she's not to have anything, nothing is to be allowed into her room, um, but she has a basket of fruit smuggled in, and in this basket of fruit is a poison asp, a poisonous snake. And she either dies by it from the snake bite or from the venom of the snake. Her and her attendants drink the poison or are poisoned, and they die. And uh, she requested that uh, she leaves a request that her and Mark Antony be buried together. And so they were. Octavian honored their wishes, gave them both uh, very honorable royal funerals befitting the, uh, the ruler of Rome and the queen of Egypt, and buried them together there in Alexandria, in, in Egypt. And 
That is the end of the Roman Republic. Now, next week, we're going to pick up with Octavian, who will become the sole ruler of Rome. Um, and we'll pick up there. Now, it also in 31 BC, it was in this time period that two sects that we read about in the Bible were developed, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were two different sects of Judaism. There's another sect. What's it called? The Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees existed prior. Um, they, they were around before the scribes and the Pharisees came to, to be. So they sprung from two houses, the house of Shammai, in the house of Hillel. Um, the scribes sprung up from the house of Shammai and the Pharisees sprung up from the house of Hillel. Jesus encountered all three of these sects, but he's largely dealing with the uh, scribes and the Pharisees. The Sadducees really, uh, we'll get into this more when we get to the life of Jesus, but the Sadducees really weren't very concerned with Jesus until Jesus became a threat to their political um, existence. Sadducees were much more political than they were religious or spiritual. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe, uh, you know, they didn't even believe they needed God's help. They just believed they could do things on their own. Um, they, they did hold to the word of God. And so they, they did not, so the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees is that the Pharisees also held to an oral tradition. The Sadducees did not hold to an oral tradition. And so scribes and Pharisees are very similar in their theology, if you will, um, but scribes were, were, they were the guys that wrote everything down. So they were typically much more um, I mean, they, they recorded everything. And so their education, they were educated in a different way to be able to write and record the scripture where the Pharisees were, had a more oral tradition. They weren't so much into the written. Uh, they did, but the scribes wrote and recorded um, and that's where we get our word scribe. I mean, that's why they're called scribes. And so it was right around this time from these two houses of these two rabbis, Shimei and Hillel, um, that these two sects arose. Paul was a Pharisee. Um, and, and so these two sects obviously are going to become very important in the life of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things happening in, in the history of the world at this time that's going to have a great effect on the gospel. So we, you, if we just think about all the encounters of Jesus had with scribes and Pharisees, it was those encounters that ultimately ended up in his murder, in his crucifixion, because it was the scribes and Pharisees now aligned with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the political rulers. Most of the Sanhedrin, the, the council of elders who ruled Israel, 
uh, and the high priest was part of that, the vast majority of them were Sadducees. There were some scribes and Pharisees there, but most of them were Sadducees. The Sadducees were the aristocracy. They were the very rich, powerful families of the Jews, and they made up uh, the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And uh, so they existed, they came into existence long before the Pharisees and the scribes, but right around this time, scribes and Pharisees kind of rise to prominence and become a force in Israel's uh, theological and political history. All right, that's where we'll stop today. Any thoughts, any questions? The Essenes. So the Essenes at this point in time. Um, but the Essenes were a, a sect of Jews who um, are probably going to arise soon, but they're not quite there yet. Uh, and the Essenes were. Uh, some people believe John the Baptist may have been an Essene. Um, the Essenes were very strict, very strict in their uh, dietary laws. Their uh, just what's it called? Um, you know, where you deny your flesh, you deny yourself. Y yeah. Yes. They were very much into asceticism, where the denial of the flesh, very strict rules about all kinds of things. They lived separate. They didn't, they didn't, you know, they'd be like our version of the um, um, Amish. You know, they just lived separate and separated themselves. They, they still held to like Nazarene vows and all kinds of things. So uh, they're not on the scene quite yet. Uh, and they, they, the Essenes existed after, so they existed after the destruction of Jerusalem. They were still around after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. The Sadducees pretty much came to an end at 70 A.D. Uh, they had no more political power, so they were, their beliefs about, afterlife and stuff like, you know, Dennis Prager is a Sadducee um, in his beliefs. Uh, who's the other guy? Well, ben, Shapiro. ben Shapiro, same way. He does believe in an afterlife? Okay. But Dennis Prager doesn't love God. Wished he loved God, but he doesn't love God. 